Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are, Bill, in the bunker yet again. Friday. I feel like we're maybe back to be ready in our own kind of cycle. I know I've been sick and, uh, you know, um, I was going to say disembodied. <laughs> You've convalesced. Yeah, I've been convalescing. I'm homeless. A couple of things. Yeah, so I've, I've not been the best partner in this, in this know, marriage hey, well, of late, but I, um, I appreciate you. We're here. You're hanging in there, being true to our, your vows. And We're thank here you. for you. Thank you. Yeah, and your wife looks out for me. I like that. She does. She does. She cares about I care about her. She's I, very easy to care about. Yeah, yeah, she's good. She's a great person. So, Bill, today, you, yes. you've chosen our topic. I jour. did, yeah, because, you know, a couple things. Um, I am currently uh, teaching church history, too, and um, – and we had actually we've been kicking around uh, doing a series, kind of our own you know, new persuasive words take on the 500th anniversary of uh, the beginning of uh, the Reformation. And we did a little bit on on with you know through Garish and Jensen. A little no, bit. we did. I think a, a very interesting analysis. Well, it was interesting to you and me and a few Sunday school classes. I think, yeah, actually people actually yeah people actually yeah. bought the books. Wow, but um, so we should get a commission. For but that, I would a, think again, that. I think um, I mean. There are certain circles that we actually are close to and, and sympathetic to that um, – and many have kind of become neo-Lutherans, whatever you want to say. They're, they're, they have um, – they're kind of looking through Lutheran lenses as they – you know, kind of – I think it's an interesting kind of – Which um, we want to make a distinguishing – we want to distinguish right between Luther's lenses and Lutheran lenses because those could be very two different things. All right. Well, help, just help me to talk. Well, I just mean like it's one thing to – this is the whole sort of Calvin versus the Calvinist debate. Right. Where you could, All right. Very good. Where you, where you could say like, you know, a lot of Calvin scholarship would say that people read Calvin through a sort of scholastic tradition or a right. Westminster tradition. Certain, come, some and, do. And, some and do. Find, yeah. yeah. And so you wind up with this Calvin versus the Calvinist sort of debate. You know, is Calvin, how much continuity and discontinuity are there? People like Ed Dowie have been, yeah. my teacher, Charles Partey, all these, these I people. actually was in Ed Dowie's last lectures on Calvin. Wow. Yeah, that was kind of he was he was uh yeah he was struggling with Parkinson's but it still was was some very um great you know it was a great class and on the other side of that debate you have people like Richard Muller right who's uh, who was that I mean he's I guess an OPC or PCA guy or something but very a distinguished Calvin scholar but very much sees lots of continuity between Calvin and the kind of scholastic tradition where others like uh, uh, ten mainline confessional scholars tend to see more distance. Yeah, well, I think we we try it. Well, you know, people that we we stand in their tradition, and we still it's a living tradition. I do think, um, you know, we try to appropriate the people we admire in the best possible light. I think so. It's hard to be, you know, it was interesting when the whole kind of con when it's kind of, when people discovered that Bart, you know. Had a unusual relationship with his secretary. I mean, it's funny that. Well, I mean, again, I don't mean to be making fun, but I thought everybody knew that. I, well, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was not a shock. It's, it's like when they read, like when they discovered the Gospel of James. Well, I, well, no, they didn't discover it. I, I read that in seminary. Well, well also, I think people like. I think there was a kind of Pollyannish take on it out there that, like, and then there were some letters that came out that were published and analyzed that Bart had written, and I mean, people. Well, you know, I, yeah. I, I think people imagined it was more chastened than it was, or something. I don't, you know, I, I think, well, you know, Bart is a, you know, Bart saved mainline Protestants in one particular way, and then when you have more conservative 
reform people, embracing him and discovering him. He, you know, he takes on a different kind of, um, a, 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 almost a different kind of iconology. I mean, I, I do think, you know, one of the things, whether you, whatever you want to describe, evangelicals or, you know, uh, more traditional Protestants, uh, there is a sense that, um, because particularly if you no longer hold on to an inerrant scripture, you're always looking for something that you can kind of, <laughs> kind of, um, bet on. I mean, that was when I was at Drew, the Odinites were, were, Funny. I mean, I can still remember questioning. And when you're saying, Tom, you're not talking about people that are that are are, are worshiping the father of Thor. No, we're talking about the, the people that uh, that were followers of uh, Tom Odin of blessed memory. And uh, I remember just qu- saying, "Boy, this, this is really kind of a strange thought in the Cappadocians in a seminar one time." And oh my gosh, it was like I maybe it's you know. I had stepped on an icon of Jesus. I mean, <laughs> one of Odin's people were like, oh, my gosh, how can you even question Gregory of, of Nyssa? I said, well, he just said something pretty strange there. But I think that one of the things, you know, in reevaluating Luther, and, I, you know, one of the things every time I do these lectures, I, I always try to read something new. And, read, you know, I've been reading some letters of Luther and things around him. And, I, you know, um, I probably, you know, most of the time – if you have to pick between the Lutheran strain and the Calvin strain, I probably end up a little more on the Lutheran strain. I mean, I don't think I'm not. I wouldn't fully embrace either of those strains, but I I enjoy Luther. I appreciate him. I said, you know, you, you know, I'd rather read one page of Luther than fifty of Calvin. Uh, but Luther frequently was an awful human being, and I, I think that part of the problem with uh, sanitizing that is that, um, you know, I, I think when you're evaluating someone's thought, it, 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 you have to look at the whole. And, and I do think that the narrowness of justification by faith alone and his, and his, and his, and his unwillingness to even give an inch anywhere, you know, became a weapon not only against his Catholic opponents, but more tragically against those who in many ways, were inspired by his very words. I mean, I think, you know, his behavior at the Marburg uh, gathering is just, um, it, there's just no excuse for it. And uh, and his comments about it when Zwinli was killed, his comments about the peasants who took his words. Uh, and again, we've talked about, we may do a whole episode on Luther and the Jews, but uh, that is, uh, you know, you can't merely say, all right, well, that was a medieval legacy. Yes. But the fact is the impact of his thinking had dire consequences far beyond his own time. And so I, I think it's interesting that, you know, in many ways, Martin, you know, we talked well, and this is, you can, you can take your point because we talked about this a little bit back and forth earlier today. But, you know, there's a lot, in a lot of ways, Martin Luther was, um, acted in many ways antithetical to the Christ he lifted up. And he did it with his thinking as well as his actions. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that... So if 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 justification by faith alone is part of the problem, right? I do think it is. I think Torquemada didn't believe in that. And he, he could be well, pretty... I mean, I think we can think well, of... Well, I think that, we can think of lots no, no. of people... It, it, the history of the medieval church. So I, th- sure. I think to lay and that actually, Tarkmad is a good example because he was a very devout guy who right. did awful things. Right, but but also there's a difference between like so. Say that like people are hypocritical and inconsistent, or that's one thing. To say that like, well, if you have, if you do a synergistic synergistic kind of view or have a faith 
something that adds, you know, this, a, a sort of more traditional medieval position on salvation or something. Lots of shitty things were done by people that did, didn't. But so, no, like, so and, I think that. No, is, and again, I mean, I, someone of a much better character, I think, like someone like Thomas More, also advocated for there to be, he thought heretics should be executed because that was even more dangerous than a capital crime. So, yeah, I think you have to, I'm, I'm, again, I, I don't. What is our position on that? <laughs> depends on the heretic. What do you think about congressmen? <laughs> I think I think capital punishment should be <laughs> perfect. Okay. I've got my list when the revolution happened. My trouble is, you know, I'd have been like I'd been one of those French revolutionaries who like helped persuade people, and like I would have been the first one to cut their head off. That, that's my trouble with, you know, I, I agree with Simone Veil. Uh, religion isn't the opium of the masses; revolution is, or change maybe. Yeah. For our, in our country, uh, make America great again is the opium of the masses right now. But no, I, and again, I, I, you know, you and I, of all, I mean, I really do think <coughs> over the years I've defended Luther and defended many historical figures saying you have to judge him by their own times. But you compare his temperament to Bucer or to uh, Stauffitz or to Melanchthon or, you know, Michael Satter, who was, you know, one, one, one of those, you know, a really lovely soul ended up being burned at the stake for his convictions as an Anabaptist. Luther... You know, Luther condemned those guys who were actually taking some of Luther's very thoughts to his logical conclusions. So I, I think that I think it's important to just to to make to lift that up because I think particularly this kind of weird merger, and again, there's some real benefit to it, but this merger of kind of a modern psychological pro, uh, analysis with a Lutheran perspective uh, that a lot of people are embracing, I, I think, and sometimes uncritically. I think sometimes it gives them it, it allows them to justify uh doing some things that are pretty pretty lousy. And so I think Luther can be instructive to us in saying that, okay, you know, for all his courage, and he was a remarkably courageous guy, and for all his, his genuine struggle and for his contributions, the shadow side is part of the story, which is true of all of us. And it doesn't help us to deny our shadow side either or, or justify it or rationalize it. Yeah, I would say, like, I think that Luther and the complicated biography and certainly somebody who is a tortured soul a little bit, I think I would want to distinguish between that and the reception of his thinking, which is always filtered through centuries of interpretation. I mean, it's interesting. You just think of the Luthers, you know, like he's... In his own time, you know, he's the recover, you know, the person that's recovered the dormant faith or hidden faith from, you know, the Orthodox and Catholic, the generation, you know, and the subsequent generation, he winds up being the guy that discovered, you know, when, when the Orthodoxy is kind of scholasticism, he winds up becoming the person that taught these great doctrines. For the pietists, he's the great interior man right. of faith. For, you know, for, you, you, you be, he, he could be a, he, for, he, for some, he is the champion of, of the worker for other, he epitomizes all of its role with the bourgeoisie. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so I think that yeah. that to say like his own sort of angry polemics and things like that, to say that those things to then draw a line to reception, I'm just really skeptical about like, uh, but don't you think it's part of that? It, it merely from a, from a critical scholarly perspective, don't you think, that you have to look at that stuff as well. That that's part. Oh of yeah, it. of course. I think. I think that yeah, absolutely. I, and, you, and you don't. You have to ask: is is some of the core uh, flaws and not again a character fault, but in how he applied his doctrine? Does, isn't it right 
to ask, is there something inherently wrong with the doctor? I mean, you can talk about the person, but isn't it, can't you also ask the question, is there something inherently, is there something in the thinking that allows him to go this direction as well? I'm just asking that question. Yeah, you, sure. I mean, you can, you can ask that. But I think, again, if you're, yeah, I mean, I would be skeptical of being able to make one to one connections or like, or, or causal effect either no, in I'm Luther's trying, time or, not, or yeah. our own. Well, no, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying the question needs to be, I think the question needs to be raised. It's part of the whole story. For instance, I wish Augustine didn't write the last two years of his life. Okay. That's, that's, I think some of his most regrettable things he wrote are in those last couple of years of his life. Um, but I think, um, I, I think you have to, that's part of the story. I, again, I can't remember. I think it's one of the books that was lost in the flood. It's kind of, is it Baynard's biography? What's that kind of famous uh, Luther biography, Here I Stand? Oh, yeah. The, uh, Roland Baton. He's the guy that wrote the book on Christian past. I, I think it's, I think it's in Roland Baton. He says that, I mean, I remember because that was one of the, I read that years ago. What says it's unfortunate that Luther lived beyond 1530. <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, 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 the content of Luther's doctrine lead him in that direction, but his consciousness did. That comes from Matt Tebby via Facebook live stream. All right. Well, uh, if you're channeling Martin, good for you. Yeah. But I, I, I think, you know, I don't think that's, I, I don't want to do that either. I don't want to say it was, I wish Luther would have been dead in 1530. I think that's, I mean, he wasn't. And, and Second half of 15th <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Steve Lipless, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And I like some of the stuff he wrote in his 30s. Uh, but again, you read what he wrote about the Jews in like 1524. And then, you know, the Jews and their lives would have, was around, I guess, in the 1530s. It's a, it's a very unfortunate uh, change of, of perspective. And I think that's part of the story. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that um, it's, it, it's part of why we shouldn't be uh, any ist or <laughs> ins. In other words, Luther didn't want a Lutheran, Calvin didn't want a Calvinist. Uh, 
partially because, you know, again, I think this is a Protestant principle, but going back to the Word of God as a way of, you know, assessing people's teachings and and what they say in their life. And I think that that, to me, the shadow side of Luther is part of the story and not to, and not to look at it and not to view his thinking through that shadow, I think, is, is – um, is something that ultimately deserves, particularly if we're trying to take the best of its insights and apply them, you know, in our current time. I think the same things. You could say the same thing with Bart. You could say the same thing with Bonhoeffer. You know, I think. I mean, for instance, the Bonhoeffer project in many ways is unfortunate because he didn't live long enough to finish some of his thinking. And so, I mean, it's almost unfair to say, well, this is what Bonhoeffer would have come up with. I mean, I think, uh, particularly in the unfinished stuff like his ethics, which I think are some some amazing things in there. But you know, to say, well, this is what he would have done or whatever. And same thing with Paul Tillich. You can't you can't talk about Tillich apart from. You know, some of his shenanigans or from the trauma that he experienced as a chaplain in World War One. So I think all of that is part of the story. Oh, sure. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that that's – although I, although when I read The Courage to Be, I think very little about Paul Tillich's biography. Well, I, I know. Again, I, I, for me, I, and the same thing too, I mean, I can – as much as – particularly, you know, I've done a lot of work with the Jewish community and Jewish-Christian dialogue um, – you know, what Luther says in that doesn't mean I don't read him anymore. The same thing with John Christensen. I think, you know, John, you know, John, if, you know, John Christensen may be the reason there's purgatory for what he said about the Jews. But also when you want to talk about a prophetic voice about the care for the poor and, um, you know, those kind of things, John Christensen, I, that doesn't prevent me from reading John Christensen. So I, I just think from a, as both a historian, as someone who, you know, what drove me to church history was looking for teachers and mentors. I mean, that really is more than just merely an academic interest. I think, you know, I found myself at Princeton wanting to, I, I needed, I needed to know more. I needed to know more about the faith and particularly as a pastor who cared about thinking. I wanted to, I wanted to read people who had, who were, who were great at both. So, I mean, for me, uh, hardly anything being written now, um, Theologically, I mean, there's very few things that are worth reading if you haven't read some of these other stuff first. But that I think sometimes is kind of we have to we have to temper our enthusiasm for these guys, or most of them guys, but for these folks. Um, and I think in some levels, it ultimately allows us to maybe appreciate them more because of their flaws and their humanity, but not to deny those flaws that are there. And that had horrendous. Uh, implications for for in some some, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, some levels the the bigger the influence, the bigger the the, the footprint they left. Um, you know, the greater possibility for damage to be done as well. That's you know, I mean, that's and Luther's not accountable for what people did with his works, but you know, he yeah. Again, I think you and I when we went back and forth earlier today. Yes, I think we need to judge him as time as a late medieval person. He you know he can't be he can't. You can't be in any other time than you are. If you're not where you're at, you're nowhere. And certainly you and I are shaped the same way by our times. But you can also – you can compare him to his peers. You can compare him to Stalpitz and Melanchthon. And um, I would say both of those folks often showed more prudence and, and more Christian charity than he did. Yeah. I mean, again, in, the, in, the, in his own context, he might have been on the prickly side. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think the danger—I think the danger of Luther is a danger to all of us. You know, when we come to this, when we come to a particular insight that's born out of our experience. As a matter of fact, you could talk about Zwingli too. Zwingli's 
kind of almost fatalistic view of providence and predestination is born out of the fact that he got the plague and lived, okay? I mean, he himself says that. So we have to, on one level, the power, I think, of the incarnation is that these important truths come to, I mean, none of us are as significant as Martin Luther, but we all have these kind of moments, these aha moments that are born out of our encounter with God and the gospel and our seeking and our struggling. And those are gifts and formative moments. But I think it's almost, and you you preached a sermon on this, it's like uh, the danger of Mark 9, you know, the, of the Mount of Transfiguration. In some levels, all of us have had those aha Mount Transfiguration moments. The trouble is when we decide to build a tabernacle there and stay there. And I think justification by faith for some people is an idolatry that prevents them from reading the truth of the gospel. Oh, I'd say, but then what, what is it? I mean, but that, no, I but mean, don't, don't. No, nah, the, the well, truth I, is, I think it's, I think it's, I shall, I will, and I shall. I, I think it's a very, <laughs> but I think it's very problematic. Don't defend that because. Well, well, no, no, I, 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 I would totally defend the doctrine. I, I, I wouldn't say that. Faith it, alone. You would defend yeah, that sure. as a biblical yeah. doctrine. Uh, yeah. I, as the yeah. New Testament teaches the way Luther teaches it. Well, I mean, I think that we could go back and forth if, if, if. I, so Bill, is there anything you believe that is, that doesn't rise off the pages from a biblicist perspective? Or are there things that. Oh yeah, no, no. I, 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 I just think that is. But is, I, I think to treat it as an idol is distorting people. Well, well you know what? To treat that. Well, okay. And it's been used. Is there a more vacuous sentence that to treat blank as an idol is a problem? To treat just here, but to, it, to, to it treat, is a problem. To treat MAGA, to treat it's a problem uh, because ecology people, like an idol, to pe- treat anything like an idol. People are throwing out biblical scholarship in the name of this Lutheran idea, and I think that that's a problem. Well, I think people also uh, ride. I mean, I think that like on any contentious topic, right? That is has to do with something in Christian theology. Oftentimes, exegetical things will be. Um, oh, sure. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. No, no. You're right. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean Paul Barclay or uh, Barclay, right? This guy who just wrote this book, which I have not yet read yet, but it's like 900 pages called on on the gift. And this is, I mean, this guy. Uh, what's it about? It's about Paul's doctrine of grace, and it, it's okay. it's closer towards a kind of Lutheran-ish perspective. He's a British scholar. I mean, I, I think this stuff always gets settled out. And of course, people are going to, I mean, I think that, you know, it was, it was, um, Ritchell that said that we shouldn't do theology by biblical studies first, then history, the exegesis, then systematics, because when we're doing exegesis, we're really just doing history of interpretation of our own tradition anyway. So we should, we should do history of interpretation first, because that's really what we're doing when we're doing exegesis. Then try to see how the Bible speaks to that. Then come out with constructive and, and, and most good commentators do that. Yeah, most, yeah, I mean, most good commentators talk about that. I, I can think of a lot of com- commentaries I have that, that aren't very cognizant of the history or reception of tradition at all. Well, no, but I'm thinking I'm thinking of the best scholarly commentaries I have on my shelf begin with the history of the interpretation of the book. Yeah, I can think of tons of series that don't do that at all. Well, no, but I'm saying the best ones. Uh, no, again, like, well, like, give me an example of, of of the best series uniformly that do that. Well, no, again, uniform. I mean, you tend to have to pick and choose. Some good commentators do that. <laughs> That's different than saying that. Well, I, I, you know, I think in some levels, I mean, there's a devotional value to. I mean, I'm, and there are some commentators that I would never say lift up. I would never use in a class if I was teaching a particular class on this. You know, uh, a, you know, if I was teaching class on Romans, there's certain commentaries I would never use. But that I, I find personally 
devotionally beneficial. So I, again, I think there. See, it's it's a, it's the thing about it is I mean, um, the most profound Bible teacher I ever knew was my grandmother, who didn't have, couldn't write beyond a fourth grade education because that's all she had. But there was something about the way she embodied the text that, to this day, I can't. I can't, there, there's nothing that I have found has invalidated that. So I, I don't. I don't want to say there's not value in devotional commentaries or purely theological commentaries. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I think Calvin's commentaries on the Psalms are amazing. I mean, I would, I would, I think everyone should have those on their shelves. Now, if I was teaching a seminary class on the Psalms, well, you know, I was going to start to say I wouldn't, I might not have them, but I would probably have them in my supplementary bibliography because sometimes you can be studying the Psalm and you can forget this is a prayer of the second temple, which has been a prayer of, of the church and prayer certainly of, it was the prayer book of, of the Reformation. And, and, uh, I think that's one of the things we've lost that's, that's not good. No, I, 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 certainly I want to grant you. I mean, in other words, I, I mean, even my critique is a provisional one. I mean, I understand that my only critique, my very critique of this is built on all the things that I both have learned and I'm reacting against. But getting back to it, I just think that, <laughs> Uh, iron sharpens iron. And I think to fully appreciate Brother Luther, who I do. And, uh, you know, I love reading Luther and love to teach Martin Luther. Um, I just think that um, it behooves us to ask the critical questions. I absolutely agree. I, I, but I, what I'm saying is I think the critical biographical questions are different from the how much did the, the cause effect questions of theology to his own, you know, lack of Christian charity in certain instances to also what the effect of the, something like justification by faith alone, which is so filtered through centuries of interpretation and popular piety. I just think that, that to act like that, this is something you could just lump together. That's, that's exceedingly complex. Like <laughs> how you how you how you how you connect those dots. It is complex, or, you know. And and but you can't give them just give them a pass. I don't give them a pass. You need to ask the question: Is there a connection between how we think and how we live? I sure, think, I think there is. Sure, uh, yeah, sure. And, it, and I, but the question is: It's a different question to say how Luther thought and how he lived, how I think and how I live. I mean, those are. And and to assume that I could go back and figure out causally. Well, no, I think it's tough even in our own biography or even in, with contemporaries. It can be tough to find that with chicken and the egg questions on that stuff. And but, so, but I, we I, do, but we do it all the time. I mean, we we sit in spiritual direction therapy, and we do it all the time. Again, I'm always skeptical. Again, I I, I want to. I'm skeptical of my own opinions as well as here is the rubric by which. Which of your opinions are you skeptical about? Uh, I'm skeptical about my positions on scripture or on ordination. I'm no, I'm those, skeptical. No, okay, no, so those that. are two things I can think of from talking to you a lot, where you don't have real formulated opinions on that. You're fuzzy on that. Now that doesn't mean you're I'm, skeptical of it. I'm skeptical of my own fuzziness. Okay, well that could be. And, I, and again, I'm sacramental. You know, it's interesting because I lean temperamentally towards Luther's sacramental theology, but then he just kind of made something up. I mean, sometimes I don't, I don't I, you know, I kind of, I like the idea that, well, we'll just call but, it but, but consubstantiation. He's, making, he's making, making up that, right? I mean, this is, in Jensen, Jensen has an essay about Luther 
appropriation. And and he says four things. Like one is um, the communication, the attributes, and Christology. Right. So in some ways, it he is kind of innovative here, but it's because he thinks there's a problem in the tradition with natures. And and they're really and so that so he's not it's not he's just making up here to solve the problem he's trying to think radically christologically and overcome a problem that, now we could argue about whether he overcame it or whether it's really a problem that needs overcoming but I but so the, you know on that but, I'm point, attra- but I want to say I'm attract I'm attracted to his solution but I also I mean it, it is a is you know it's a novelty is it an innovation. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I don't. It's, this, that, this could be a different podcast because I think, you know, sometimes some of like Don Scotus Erjunia or Bonaventure, you know, some of this kind of Franciscan uh, mystical approach to the incarnation. I mean, I, I mean, it's that's you know that part of. I mean, there may be an intuition that that Luther taps into there that's present in the tradition and other places, and he explicitly says it. All I'm saying is that. Um, you know, no, the, that that's just one of the many ways I'm attracted to some of Luther's unique. I mean, on one level, it gets down to, for him, the mass was incredibly meaningful, and and the encounter of the living Christ, and it was incredibly meaningful. And for a lot of reasons, he had to ex- reject what he thought was the scholastic position. But you know, I, I and there was a book written about this. Uh, it, it was about Calvin and Aquinas. But it'd be interesting if Calvin, Luther, and Aquinas. Throw it, who else you went to in the room? We're put in a room, and they all had the same cosmology and worldview. Would they? They might talk alike about the sacrament. You know, we don't. We don't know that. Well, I mean, for Calvin, like Aquinas, the local presence is really important. For Luther, and again, both of them, I think, think about the natures, right, uh, the human and divine, in ways that, like, the divine nature does certain things, the human nature does other things. You know, in a way that Luther wants to say. That wherever Christ is, the whole Christ is there, and so so well, that, and he's driven by you know he just the text. This is my body. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. so I think, but I think some of the Christ, and again, we could there are good critiques of those Christological moves, but I, but I think no, his Christocentrism has always been very attractive, and someone like Jensen, I think, is trying to and and that's and follow Jen- on some of those moves, and that's why Jensen is my favorite. Well. Most recently deceased theologian. <laughs> he was our favorite living theologian. To he went on to his reward. Well, didn't necessarily solve anything today, but it was. Uh, it's good to be alive. And I just want to say, it's I, good to be alive. I just want to say, I, I'm not backing down on when you say don't. I, I did. I I, I know, will. I know. I and t- I shall. <laughs> I, I know. I know. I tapped in. I tapped into. Yeah, we tapped into something there, but that's okay. It's fun for us to fight a little bit. I, I, well, I'm not. It's just, not, I'm just. I saying, know you won't back down. You're Tom Petty. I am Tom Petty. <laughs> All right, good day. Have everybody. a have a great weekend, everybody.
Hot 95.5